0: This presentation was recorded live at the
1: 19th Annual SRI in the Rockies Conference: Beyond Borders, Investing and Partnering for a Sustainable World, held October 26 through 29, 2008, in Whistler,
2: British Columbia, Canada. Thanks for coming. Uh, thanks especially to those who uh, just rolled out of bed, especially for this panel. We're very glad you could make it. Um, we, we are going to discuss uh, SRI and, and sustainable investing, um, uh, where, where some connections are, uh, maybe where some gaps are. Um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to open with a joke. I'll try it out with you. A, uh, a consultant, an index provider, an asset manager, and uh, a corporate affairs for sustainability director are standing on a podium. Um, we'll figure out the punchline later. But uh, <laughs> I'm uh, I'm glad to be here. I'm actually uh, honored to be moderating this panel. I think it's going to be interesting and and a lot of fun. Uh, I do have with me to my immediate left uh, Miranda Anderson, uh, corporate affairs. Uh, director for sustainability for, uh, Walmart, uh, Joe Keefe, president and CEO of PAX World, and Alexander Bacawi, manager, dir- uh, managing director of, uh, the Dow Jones Sustainability Index, uh, FAM. Dow Jones
3: Sustainability Index.
2: Um, I'm gonna, uh, I'm gonna do a little longer, uh, presentation than, um, than perhaps some moderate, moderators. Uh, and and try to give an overview um, uh, of SRI and sustainability, but really from uh, the consulting perspective. um, I'll start with a a tiny bit about Mercer. Mercer is a global uh, institutional investment consulting firm. Um, We do uh, a lot of work around the world with pension funds, endowments, foundations. We do have a a global uh, responsible investment team, Uh, I am the U.S. uh, leader of that team. My colleague uh, Kelly Gouthier is sitting over there. She helps me out with U.S. work from our Toronto office. Um, And I bolded, it may be hard to see, but I bolded responsible investment there among uh, the list of of some of the things that Mercer does. Um, So I bolded it, you know, so you can see it. Um, But one thing to explain is that um, responsible investment, we, we do work in all of the other listed areas, so it's something that could underlie or overlay um, all of the kind of core investment consulting activities that uh, that you're all familiar with, manager search and selection, uh, research, uh, asset allocation, um, strategic planning, uh, governance issues, as well as the, the technical applications, so we have different uh, Areas of SRI and sustainable investing information, um, in our systems, just to give you an idea of where responsible, uh, responsible investment fits, um, within Mercer. I'm gonna skip that one, um, and, and spend some time on this slide. So, forgive the, the oversimplifications and, and generalizations in this slide, but, um, wanted to kind of break out the different approaches to SRI and sustainable investing that, uh, that we're seeing in the market and And list some some characteristics of each um, and and we can uh, these will be addressed um, by the other panelists and and we can talk about them uh, some more in the q and um, a you 've probably heard these terms or, or similar terms and are familiar with most of these characteristics. Um, a, a few things I do want to point out. Um, and again, this is from the, the Mercer perspective, and, and there are overlaps, but um, the negative screening approach is, is often uh, most, mostly associated with uh, mission-based investors, faith-based investors. Um, it, it entails uh, sector exclusions um, for those things that, that investors do not want to hold uh, in their portfolios for, for ethical, moral, uh, religious reasons, and, and sometimes uh, for financial risk reasons. Um, those are available in in mutual funds and and separate accounts, and and you know some of the providers. Um, Positive screening, best in class, and and we've struggled with breaking these out into two different ones or or putting best in class investing with ESG integration, but this is the way it is on this slide, so I'll I'll do my best to explain why. Um, uh, Positive screening and best in class, uh, starting with positive screening, I'm, I'm a little... Uh, sometimes weary of that term, having come from uh, an SRI research firm. I, I think it's important to understand that sometimes positive screening, um, it, you know, still uh, is screening out the worst. So it's still a form of negative screening, but it's on an issue basis versus a sector basis. So you're screening out the worst in, in, in order to get the best. Um, there's still some threshold, some criteria uh, specifically underlying that selection. Um, best in class is is different. Um, there there are no uh, sector exclusions, um, but it's it's finding uh, the best uh, companies from um, an environmental, social, and, and governance or, or sustainability perspective in each sector. So taking the, the best performers in each sector to have a more diversified portfolio so you're not underweight in some of the things that um, that ethical or faith-based investors may screen out. So imagine a line uh, below best-in-class screening, and I'll, I'll put that in the next time I give this presentation, I promise. Um, and, and above the line are, are approaches that... that Really do require at least uh, from our perspective generally some specific criteria for for the screening process below that um, is a more subjective approach that that depends uh, more especially with ESG integration on a, on a manager, an investment manager 's interpretation of what ESG issues are important and and how they line up, um, how they weigh. Uh, compared to investment characteristics, so ESG um, integration is an approach where environmental, social, and governance issues are are considered as as material risk factors, um, not necessarily because of of an ethical uh, or, or moral or or faith based belief, but because the determination is made that these are going to impact the value of the company or their portfolio over the long term. And then those are balanced with with more traditional financial characteristics. Again, according to the way Mercer sees it, according to the strengths of the manager. Um, so it's it's not a, a one size fits all approach. You know, as with screening, there are different approaches, uh, different opinions on on what's important and and how they weigh together. But it is a much more subjective approach. And we see uh, in our discussions with managers, and and we talk to a lot of. SRI sustainable investing managers, as well as mainstream managers, about ESG. There, there's a whole range of ways that ESG integration is happening and not happening. Um, there are good, a uh, good, from Mercer's perspective, mainstream managers uh, that have good fundamental research, uh, a qualitative approach that that do consider ESG, that that may even have a, a list of issues. That analysts are are supposed to consider when looking at companies, but with a lot of flexibility in terms of, uh, you know, which sectors, which issues, and and how to value that in a portfolio. Um, ESG themed funds, um, uh, clean tech, clean energy, uh, you know, sector focused, uh, not not always the most diversified options. Although there are definitely those that are taking a, a broader view of of clean tech or, or clean energy or green investing that, that are more diversified. Um, there are ETFs and, and separate accounts and increasingly um, mutual funds in, in both ESG integration and ESG-themed funds. Um, I'm going to move on and, and put up a couple of slides. And, and the title of the session in, involves uh, bridging gaps. And um, I was thinking about that a lot actually i i wasn 't losing sleep over it, but I, I, I was thinking about it a lot and how how the bridge really applies or doesn 't and um, Kelly uh, helped me uh, come up with this actually came up with this graphic. mine was more like a Pollock painting, but um, <laughs> when i when I saw this and and was looking at it and was thinking about today um, the the a bridge didn 't really come to mind, but what immediately came to mind. Was the trapeze at the circus, where um, on either side you have individuals where uh, with help from people, and if the wind is just right, they can go from one platform to the other. so I have tobacco up here, and um, and I think there are issues that are of concern to mission based and mainstream investors um, about tobacco, and we have talked to not a lot but one or two mainstream managers who look at tobacco uh and look at the long-term risks of the industry and say we we are not going to invest in that and it may not be part of their guidelines but they will tell us that because of their consideration of the long-term impacts of of tobacco and and looking at long-term possibilities of litigation that they just don't see them in their in their portfolio so there are um places where where mainstream investors may Swing over to the mission-based side And mission-based investors can swing over And are increasingly swinging over As as we'll hear To uh, to the mainstream side Or, or the ES integration side um, a- Another example Using the same graphics with climate change And here I'll, uh, I'll say something that um, I-, I can only really say At this conference um, Well, this is the only conference I can say it at um, So we have Climate change, and, and here on this slide, um, apologies for the bullet that says supporting rollback of environmental regulation. Uh, Mission based investors are unlikely to do that. Uh, I was probably working on this, too much election coverage, and so sorry, but of course that's supposed to mean the opposite. Um, uh, so there, there are places I think where. where uh, these two types of investors are coming together where environmental integration from a mission or environmental degradation is important from a, a mission based perspective for many investors, um, environmental justice um, and and uh, trying to improve environmental regulation and mainstream investors have concerns for their portfolios about the long term risks of of carbon. Uh, and, and the impacts of climate change, um, uh, you know, assuming that climate change is is real, uh, which you know I think it is, and and more investors think it is, um, and and opportunities uh, presented by uh, environmental markets, green markets for institutional investors. So, the thing that I'm uncomfortable saying at, at most other investment conferences that I'll say here is from a from a let's take a public pension plans view um, investing. Uh, considering climate change and carbon for a pension plan has maybe not uh, short-term or, or mid-term benefits, but long-term for, for a pension plan where a state or a city, uh, those workers are the beneficiaries, taking carbon into account may uh, decrease pollution, Uh, May create jobs, may increase contributions to the plan if it creates jobs, may decrease health health costs if um, if pollution is decreased. So I think there there are an increasing number of examples where um, where the pendulum is swinging, where the trapeze artists are. Trapezing, um, it, it won't always be communicated that way, um, and, and that's why um, I can say this to you, but not everywhere else. Um, so I think there are institutional investors that we deal with that that see certain things as the right thing to do. They also see an investment case, and and you may not hear of it as an SRI approach, but um, but it can be in some in some ways. So I will uh, I will stop there. This is uh, a slide. Showing the converging agendas, which is really just a, a summation of, of what I was talking about, and uh, I will pass it over to uh, Mr. Keith.
1: Thank you, Craig. Um, I wrote a few articles on this issue of uh, SRI and sustainable investing last year to the most recent um, it's available on our, our booth. Called uh, sustainable investing as an emergent investment discipline, and I'm going to just try to summarize as quickly. There's a more in-depth article. Of those views here. Um, the, the, the distinction that I'm making is that SRI, in its in its classic formulation, uh, defined itself as the integration of personal and societal values into investment decision making. Um, Sustainable investing, as I'm using the term, and it's what we call our investment approach now at Pax World. Uh, we define as the full integration of environmental, social, and governance factors (ESG factors) into investment and decision uh, analysis and decision making. Um, the Social Investment Forum, for example, continues to use the term SRI, socially responsible investing, but has actually altered its definition. Had you gone to the SIF website a few years ago, you would see SRI defined as, quote, integrating personal and societal values with investment decisions. Uh, it now defines it on the website as, quote, integrating ESG factors into investment decisions. Uh, Calvert's formulation, for example, continues to be SRI, but Calvert now denotes SRI to mean sustainable and responsible investing instead of socially responsible investing. Uh, the Social Investment Research Analyst Network, (Siren), uh, that some of you may be familiar with, affected a similar change recently when it became the Sustainable Investment Research Analyst Network, preserving its acronym but changing its name. Um So there has been a significant shift in language and emphasis in recent years from SRI to sustainable investing, uh, from the language of values uh, to the language of ESG integration. Um And in my view, this is not simply a semantic shift. It is, in fact, definitional and marks the emergence of a new investment discipline called sustainable investing, or I think best called sustainable investing, premised upon the financial materiality of ESG factors and therefore the need to fully integrate them into investment analysis and decision making. What characterizes an investment discipline is a point of view, a theory on what factors contribute in the most important way, that is to say are most material, to investment performance over time. All investment disciplines Value investing, growth strategies, quant models, passive index strategies focus on capturing the returns associated with certain factors they deem to be the most material. Value investors, Benjamin Graham, who wrote the classic text, The Intelligent Investor, Warren Buffett, focus on capturing the turns they see inherent in the difference between price and intrinsic value. Growth-oriented investors focus on capturing the returns associated with perhaps earnings growth or dividend growth, depending on what school of growth strategy they're from, um, or some other factors. Index investors focus on mitigating the risks and costs associated with individual securities and actively managed funds by capturing the overall performance of the market. They deem risks and costs to be most material. Sustainable investing um, is, an emer- is an emergent investment discipline that focuses on capturing the returns associated with ESG factors, avoiding the risks associated with substandard ESG performance, and capturing the benefits associated with superior ESG performance. Um, so by saying that sustainable investing is an emergent Investment discipline. We're saying it's like other investment disciplines or theories or schools of thought in that it has a particular viewpoint on what is the best way to achieve market performance or outperformance over the long term. I would argue that SRI in its classic formulation, when defined in terms of values integration rather than ESG integration, did not and could not have such a viewpoint because it really wasn't a unified investment theory. It was instead a general category referring to a collection of different investment styles and approaches connected to various values, often, not always, but often religious in origin, which typically included the use of exclusionary screens regarding certain types of companies or whole industries. Despite the fact that SRI firms were doing um, tremendously positive work in areas such as shareholder activism and community investing and so forth, because of the emphasis on values-based exclusionary screens, SRI arguably became defined in the popular mind more in terms of what it didn't invest in than in terms of what it did invest in, essentially a negative formulation. Also, because SRI wasn't a unified investment theory, but rather a collection of investment approaches, various firms emphasized different values and deployed different screens and so forth, the strongest performance case that SRI would make in those days um, was that you could invest with your values without sacrificing performance. Again, essentially a negative formulation. Um, Sustainable investing, by contrast, is a positive discipline that defines itself in terms of what it does invest in rather than what it doesn't invest in. And what it does invest in are companies with strong ESG or sustainability performance. Sustainable investing maintains that ESG criteria have financial materiality and that taking them into account, both through fundamental analysis and through shareholder advocacy, it's a smarter way to construct and manage investment portfolios over the long term. Whereas SRI in its classic formulation made the case, and I think the evidence supports, um, that one needn't sacrifice performance in order to invest with their values. Sustainable investing makes the case. Um, and again, I think the evidence supports this, that integrating ESG criteria into um, financial analysis can be a strategy for outperformance. The weight of the research shows strong correlations between ESG performance and financial performance. Moreover, I think over the next several years we will see increasingly sophisticated attribution analysis that identifies and measures and quantifies the contributions of ESG metrics and other intangible value drivers to long-term investment portfolio performance. The problems, I think, that SRI confronted in its classic formulation in gaining acceptance with institutional fiduciaries and even with mainstream retail investors were in many ways attributable to the investing with values definition. Values-based exclusionary screens were viewed and continue to be viewed by a large section of the investing public as extra-financial and irrelevant, um, if not compromising when it comes to financial performance." Investors are simply never going to – excuse me, values are simply never going to be considered economic. But the overwhelming evidence in study after study is that ESG factors certainly are. Sustainable investing by focusing on the materiality of ESG factors is focusing on something that all investors should consider and, frankly, that fiduciaries are obligated to consider. It's instructive in this regard that Mercer Consulting, uh, Craig, recently announced that it will henceforth – Include ESG questions and analysis, including active ownership strategies, and all of its questionnaires and its database and in all of its manager searches. I think to date our industry has done a very good job making the economic case on certain issues. Climate change, for example, is a good example, and on certain shareholder resolutions. But I think we still need to do a better job making the economic case for the investment discipline as a whole. There is still confusion in the marketplace. Witness the recent Department of Labor guidance suggesting that ESG criteria are non-economic, or the recent article in Forbes magazine suggesting that CSR doesn't pay. I do think some of this confusion and some of the ammunition we provide our adversaries, like the folks over at the Chamber of Commerce, has its origins in the way we have defined our investment approach in the past and that transitioning from a values-based frame to an ESG-based frame from socially responsible to sustainable investing can help us clear up this confusion and better communicate with investors. Uh, A related point, values are always going to be viewed by the investing public as more personal and subjective, whereas ESG metrics are seen as more measurable and objective. So, too, the concept of socially responsible is more subject to dispute, what you and I may define as socially responsible, may be very different things, whereas whether corporate practices are more or less sustainable is something that can quite often be observed and analyzed and measured and even quantified. Focus groups that we conducted at PACS in late 2006 revealed that investors, if they were familiar with SRI at all, linked it to poor performance and seemed to attribute this to a, quote, limited investment universe, and to, quote, a do-gooder focus. Um, They were put off by discussions of values in connection with investing. They saw values as personal and didn't want anyone telling them what their values should be. Thank you very much. On the other hand, they had a very positive reaction to sustainability. And interestingly enough, to these focus groups, sustainability had a double meaning, a doubly positive uh, connotation. It meant it signified green or environmental on the, weather, on the one hand, which they viewed as good, but it also signified durability, stability, a dependability over the long term, sustainable. In other words, precisely what people want from their investments. So these focus groups buttressed the case, in our view, from moving from a values-based frame to an ESG-based frame, from SRI to sustainable investing. Um, in distinguishing... Sustainable investing from SRI and characterizing it as an investment discipline that is ESG-based and focused on materiality or economic relevance. I'm not saying that we should never talk about values, as in some respects, they are obviously always at issue. And faith-based investors and so forth should always be talking about their faith. Um, And sustainable investing, like any investment approach, is informed by certain values, the desire to preserve and protect the planet or promote diversity or respect the human rights of workers are all derived from values. In fact, what sustainable investing essentially asserts is that properly functioning corporations and markets that internalize certain normative standards with respect to how they interact with workers, communities, and the environment will be more durable and valuable in the long run. So far from suggesting that ESG criteria are only relevant to the degree that they produce financial results, sustainable investing really posits to the contrary that long-term financial health is only possible to the degree that businesses and markets internalize ESG imperatives. Sustainable investing advocates for an alignment of financial outcomes with environmental and social and governance outcomes, not with values, but with outcomes, insisting that corporations and markets behave differently because their long-term success will depend on meeting certain ESG benchmarks. So in other words, there are values embedded in the ESG criteria that sustainable investing deploys, just as there are values embedded in the conservative notion that the only duty of a corporation is to make a profit and that markets are best left unfettered and scantily regulated. Values are always important and are always at issue, but values per se is not an investment concept and is of little use in in defining an investment discipline. Sustainable investing, in my view, is a better formulation, a better way forward for our industry, And ultimately, our case needs to be based upon the materiality of ESG. We need to clarify that ours is an ESG-based rather than values-based investment discipline focused on financial or economic factors, not extra financial or non-economic ones. Um, And in this sense, whereas SRI was more of a general category denoting a collection of different investment styles and strategies, sustainable investing really should be presented as a distinct um, investment discipline. That's the best strategy, in my view, for attracting investors and broadening our market. And I also think it has the potential to be a transformative investment discipline, one that can align positive investment outcomes with positive societal and environmental outcomes over time, although in this regard its impact certainly and potential certainly will depend upon um, dramatically improved public policy in the years ahead. Government will need to become involved as a partner in incentivizing behavior and shaping markets in the direction of sustainability which is another discussion, which I know we're taking up at 4.30 and, and elsewhere throughout this uh, conference. Thank you very much.
3: Yeah, thanks. Great. Good morning, everybody. It's, uh, it's, uh, it's great to be here for several reasons. One of them is... Uh, this is the only conference I know that where you say good morning, you get a good morning back, so that's, that, that's great. Um, and secondly, it's a particular pleasure to be in this workshop because I remember that uh, back at SAM uh, in Switzerland, we had a discussion, I think, around six years ago, and uh, we had somebody there from the United States, and, and she said, you know what, you will not be able to get into this market with the term sustainability. And uh, hearing uh, you guys talk about sustainability, and in fact being able to announce that we're getting the first Dow Jones Sustainability Indexes product into the U.S. market within the next couple of months, uh, this is this is a great time uh, to be here. So uh, thank you for that. Let me uh, briefly start off by telling you uh, who I work for, because there's always some uh, confusion around that, and then uh, touch upon a couple of points. Uh, on the subject of this workshop. First, I um, work for a company called SAM, which stands for Sustainable uh, Asset Management. We were established in 1995 as an asset manager focused on integrating uh, sustainability criteria into uh, fund management. And we, after a couple of years of doing so, realized that if we really want to move this concept of sustainability into mainstream investing... And that's where we want to have it. We need to provide the market with professional and objective benchmarks. And we therefore at that point in time um, got in touch with Dow Jones. And to our great delight, Dow Jones said yes to the idea of launching a joint family of indexes called the Dow Jones Sustainability Indexes, which is today still marketed and licensed as a partnership of Sam and Dow Jones and two of my colleagues from Dow Jones, uh, Michelle and Lisa, actually uh, sitting at the back of, of this room. Um, I also thought a lot about the uh, title of this workshop, about the content of it, and I have to admit, I didn't like the whole framing of it as a gap. Um, I actually very liked Craig's last chart where he showed uh, two circles, and I think what we're talking here is the, the, about is the potential overlap between ethically driven investing and performance-driven investing. And both type of investors might, at least to some extent, actually look at very similar issues. Now, the overlap is not 100%, but it is getting bigger. And I want to spend a couple of minutes um, talking about ways how to actually increase the overlap between performance-driven investing that integrates ESG factors and ethically motivated investing that has been looking at these type of issues for a very long time. Uh, Before I do so, let me just touch upon the issue of framing, and and Joe mentioned the um, push for framing it as sustainability investing. There was a recent study published last summer um, by by AXA, one of the largest asset managers, that questioned I think around 350 uh, investment professionals about I think it were 16 terms that are floating around in this space. And they asked them, okay, which term would you like to use? And the majority actually said, we think ESG uh, should take the lead, and that was closely followed by sustainability, uh, most probably for the same reasons uh, as the one that Joe mentioned before. It's associated uh, with positive outcomes in terms of investing, and it is also associated with a uh, performance-driven approach to investing. And with that, let me uh, point to three factors that I think we as an industry should look at uh, very closely to increase the overlap and therefore also to make sure that the type of ESG criteria that we care about are getting onto the radar screens of mainstream investors and with thus on the radar screens of those investors who in a lot of cases by law are required to maximize returns. The first one is obviously the link between sustainability criteria and uh, performance. Um, What you see here is uh, a recent study by a responsible uh, investor uh, asking a whole uh, group of institutional investors how they see the relationship between performance and sustainability. And you see that uh, a bit more than 40% actually think that there is a positive relationship between the two, uh, a bit more than 40% say it's too early to tell. And very few investors are still actually saying we think the, the relationship is negative. Now, this is already great news for this industry, and it shows that we have come a long way. We obviously need to work on the 45% or so who are still saying it's too early to tell. As an aside, I find it a bit peculiar that um, people in the institutional investing business are often still saying it's too early to tell and therefore we're not making a move, knowing that a lot of people, a lot of the same people have made a move into credit default swaps and other products that didn't have a track record at all, uh, that had no or or at least no solid basis that were not understood, and still uh, people made a move into them. So sometimes I have the impression that there are double standards Uh, within the mainstream investing community what is being asked of uh, sustainability-driven products and the um, lines of argument that need to support them and mainstream products. And I think we as an industry could be a bit more assertive uh, in pointing to these double standards. I also think that we as an industry could be a bit more assertive in pointing to the problems of short-termism. And I think pointing to the problems of short-termism is another very important uh, leverage point to increase uh, interest among mainstream investors in sustainability issues. Um, This is just a uh, screenshot of the title of an article published by Alfred Rappaport, who you all know is regarded as the father of the shareholder value concept, and who wrote a whole article about the the economics of short-term performance obsession and how short-termism is actually providing wrong signals to the corporate world. And I assume, Miranda, that's a discussion that we can also take up, how are financial markets actually moving companies to a very short-term focus and thus away from the long-term projects and activities that would come along with a more sustainable way uh, of doing business. Another study that I always like mentioning in that context is one, Uh, that was published by the NBER here in in, in the U.S. some time ago where the researchers asked 400 U.S. CFOs whether they would go or what they would do if they had a project in front of them that would definitely generate a high net present value over the next five years but would have a detrimental effect on this quarter's earnings. And 50 percent of them said, I would not go ahead with the project. And that is a complete catastrophe. Not for ethical investors, it's a complete catastrophe for any investor who is interested in long term returns. And I think we as an industry should point to this a bit more forcefully and especially talk about these issues when uh, discussing sustainability investing with pension funds and other investors who, by definition, must have an interest that a CFO would do that project rather than to optimize current uh, quarterly earnings. Uh, And in that context, I'd like to to build the bridge uh, to to the next um, presentation uh, and to the fact that there is much more corporate recognition now of the uh, sustainability investing movement. One of the uh, things that is extremely encouraging on our side at SAM together with Dow Jones is that more and more companies actually are defining inclusion in the Dow Jones sustainability indexes as one of their corporate goals. And, in fact, we see more and more companies actually linking bonus payments within their company to the question of whether the company makes it into the indexes or not. This is a screenshot uh, from the uh, performance scoreboard of the CEO of Westpac, one of the largest Australian banks. Uh, The gentleman has five criteria which determine his bonus. And criteria uh, number five is Westpac's position in the Dow Jones Sustainability uh, Indexes. Now, I always take it with a grain of salt. It's probably 95% the other four criteria and 5% this fifth criteria, but it's great to see how much traction sustainability investors can get through indexes, through funds, with companies. And I think it's also important for investors then to see that these signals are being heard within the companies and are actually initiating changes. Thank you very much.
4: I'm glad to be here. Um, As many of you know, this is Walmart's first time at SRI in the Rockies. Um, Not my first time. This is actually my fourth SRI in the Rockies. I joined Walmart about nine months ago, and prior to that was more in this industry. I worked for a climate and energy strategy firm in Washington, D.C., called David Gardner & Associates. Did a lot of work for many of you as well as for Ceres. So it's it's in some ways... um, In some ways, I am a bridge, right? (laughs) So glad to be here. Um, Since I only have 12 minutes and I have 25 slides and two videos, I'm going to talk really quickly, um, and I'm actually going to use notes, which I typically don't like to do, but it will help me keep on track. So today's panel seeks to bridge the gap between socially and environmentally responsible actions and investments and what's fundamentally good for the business, Investments and actions. And you've already heard from the rest of the panel on the investment side, and my job really is to talk to you more about what corporations are doing and, in specific, what Walmart's doing to bridge this gap. Um, So here's a a quick overview of what I'm going to cover. I'm going to talk a little bit about kind of the questions we're trying to answer here, very quickly give you an overview of how Walmart does sustainability. I think it will help us uh, further along in the discussion to just give you that background. And then I'm going to go into two specific examples of of the literally hundreds of activities that are happening within our company where we're finding that what's right for, for people and for the environment is also what's right for the fundamentals of the business. Now, I do want to emphasize that I'm going to be focused on the E part of ESG. That's where my expertise lies. We have a robust environment, social, and governance program in the company, but my background is in the environment side. So that's, that's where I'll focus today's conversation. So really, to begin, this panel is, is discussing whether doing what's right for the business can be synonymous with doing well for customers, doing well for our associates, and doing well for shareholders. And at Walmart, our core mission is to save people money so they can live better. And in many ways, our mission is that bridge between economics and what's right for people and the environment. Before I start, I just want to share a quick quote from Lee Scott. Um, As many of you know, last week... Last Wednesday, actually, on October 22nd, we had our first sustainability summit in China where Lee and our other top executives spoke to a 1,000 CEOs of our major suppliers there as well as the Chinese government, academics, NGOs, and some others. Um, I thought Joe said it well when he said there's still confusion in the marketplace. And it was really interesting because when the mainstream media heard that we were doing this conference, They actually pushed back when they heard that we were going to be holding our supply chain to higher ethical and environmental standards because of what's happening in the global economy right now. Um, The anti-conservational movement and the anti-human rights movement have been espousing for years that this is an either-or proposition, that you can either do what's right for people and the environment or you can do what's right for the bottom line. And everyone in this room knows that that's a false choice. And we at Walmart have been proving for the last three years that it's a false choice. And we went forward with this conference because we know that ultimately what's good for the bottom line is also good for people and the environment. So let me show you, share with you something that Lee said. With all that's going on in the global economy, should being a socially and environmentally responsible company still be a priority? You're darned right, sustainability should be a priority. This global economy will... Turn around. He also said it may not be th- this week, this month, or even this year, but the social and environmental challenges we're addressing today will be with us for decades. He said, I am certain that it will be worth it. Lee doesn't say that lightly. He is the CEO of the largest company in the world, the fortune number one company. He doesn't say that lightly. I'm certain that it will be worth it. I believe that as a businessman, as a person with responsibilities to shareholders, and as a father, and as a grandfather. So just with that, to set the stage, I'm gonna very quickly give you an overview of how we do environmental sustainability at Walmart. In 2004, when the company worked with Conservation International to really understand our environmental impact, it very quickly became apparent that only about 8% of our full impact is within our four walls. So we created a program that we call Sustainability 360. It has four cornerstones. The first is obviously our own operations. We operate over 7,400 stores globally. We have one of the world's largest Class 8 private trucking fleets. Um, Our own footprint is not inconsequential, despite the fact that it's only less than 10% of our full impact. We have over 2 million associates worldwide. We have a really exciting associate engagement program, Um, I'm not going to talk about it today, but I'm happy to to share with you about it if you're interested. Customers. We have 176 million customers globally that go through Walmart stores every week. Every week, 176 million customers. Um, The opportunity to democratize sustainable products is enormous. I'll tell you more about that. Suppliers. We have somewhere between 50 and 60,000 first-tier suppliers at any given time. Again, most of our environmental impact is here, and that's what our summit in Beijing was really about last week. So in, in 2005, Lee laid out three aspirational goals for us as a company, to be supplied by 100% renewable energy, to create zero waste, and to sell products that sustain our natural resources and the environment. Now, these are aspirational goals. They guide everything that we do as a company, But in order to be truly accountable to ourselves and to our stakeholders, we have to have more measurable benchmarks and timelines. Um, So we have literally dozens of more specific objectives. A few of them are listed here. I'm not gonna go into great detail. Uh, But this is how we actually measure our own progress over time. I think Walmart has one of the most brilliant governance structures for environmental sustainability that I've seen. We have 13 sustainable value networks. These are actually embedded in the business Each one is governed by an executive sponsor who reports directly to Lee Scott, and each one has one or two captains. The captains are typically at the senior VP or VP level, and they're within the business. And then those captains are supported by anywhere between 10 and 200 managers, senior managers, directors, senior directors, and other VPs within the business to help them achieve their objectives. The networks also include suppliers, academics, Environmentalists, NGOs, and other other people who can bring expertise to these teams in the areas of envir- of the environment. All right. So with that overview, um, I, I want to take you through just a couple of examples where we've seen the bridge between uh, where. Doing what's right and what's ethical is also doing what's good for the business from a fundamental perspective. And as I said, there are literally hundreds of these examples, uh, but I'm just going to take you through two very quickly. So I'll start with um, an example from our own footprint. We've got a number of networks that work on reducing the environmental impact of our footprint. We have a greenhouse gas network, a sustainable buildings network, a global logistics and fleet network that works on our fleet of trucks, alternative fuels and a waste network. And I'm going to give you an example from our buildings network. So when we started looking at reducing the environmental impact of our buildings, we found that when you when you drive efficiency, when you drive waste out of the system not only is it good for the bottom line and I think we was already mentioned that climate change is the space where we're, we're making this pretty, pretty clear. But we're also finding new revenue streams. So, for example, in the area of trash, where we used to pay someone to haul our trash away, we actually now get paid to have that recycled. It's, it's a totally different vision of what is trash. It's just a mis, misplaced commodity. There's a lot of words on this slide, so I apologize for that. And I'm not going to take you through all of them, but it starts with a a couple of the specific goals that our sustainable buildings team has, Um, And we have pretty significant goals to reduce the greenhouse gas emissions of our stores, increase the energy efficiency, and implement a range of other sustainable features, everything from fly ash in our cement to recycled baseboards to wastewater reclamation and and low-flow fixtures. And as you can see at the bottom, this is really an international effort. Um, Our stores around the globe are working to build um, both uh, culturally and geographically appropriate, more sustainable buildings. So nobody can really explain what's happening in our buildings better than the engineers who actually work on the buildings, and since they can't come everywhere with me, I like to bring them to you. Um, So I'm going to show you a, a short video clip of our Sustainable Buildings Network, and I'm going to ask you to really pay attention to the two things that we're talking about today, to what they say about how this is good for the environment and good for people and what they say about how this is good for the business.
5: You know, I was there in Bentonville in October of 2005 when we outlined all of our different sustainability goals, including development of a 25 to 30% more efficient prototype. And our stores are already efficient. They always have been. Energy is our number two operating expense, so we've been focused on it for literally decades. But to stand here today in Wichita, Kansas, and know that we have met, in fact, exceeded that goal already two and a half years into that four-year time frame, is really exciting. Not only in our stores, but in buildings in general, there's the potential for an absolute revolution in terms of radical energy efficiency and carbon reduction. If every building in the US reached the same goal that we're about to reach, the 30% more efficient goal, it'd be equivalent to taking nearly 100 million vehicles off the road. Not to mention saving billions of dollars on our energy bills. The key to achieving all this has been integrating our systems and using existing technologies in new and innovative ways.
6: Historically, refrigeration system, the HVAC system, or the air conditioning and heating system, and the lighting systems, those have been viewed almost as siloed areas. The concept of the AG is to integrate those together to see what value we can pull out of an energy stream that perhaps started with refrigeration and may end up with heating. The refrigeration units down in the floor, as they collect heat from the product, it's pumped up to the central pumping system and then it's either rejected outside on warmer days or if there's a demand in the building, it's recirculated to the various rooftop units that we see here and put right back in the store. Refrigerants themselves represent a pretty significant uh, global warming potential. So in the HE program we reduced the refrigerant footprint by 90%, so that's a tremendous savings from a refrigerant standpoint, from a global warming potential standpoint. One of the most visual aspects of the HE store is the daylight harvesting system. As the sun comes up on a bright sunny day, we have controls that slowly dim the lights down to where they're no longer needed. So that avoids about $50 million a year in utility costs, so it's a pretty big deal. One of the great features of the HE store is the LED lighting that's in these low-temperature cases. The LED lighting saves about 50% electricity over conventional fluorescent lighting, saves about 50% refrigeration load, and the life cycle now just about exceeds the life of the case.
5: Walmart is believed to be one of the largest private purchasers of electricity in the world. Yet we still only purchase a fraction of 1% of the energy produced in the US today. So with all these things that Walmart's doing, as great as it is and as impactful as it is, it's really gonna take a lot more of people getting involved for us to get to where we need to be as a country and as a planet.
6: That's why we've created the SEEP program or the supplier energy efficiency program. What we're trying to do is take the learnings that we've developed through HE and retrofit programs and make those available to the supply chain and affect a much greater footprint than our own.
4: So that's just one example of how focusing on our own footprint is an ethical and environmental decision and a fundamental business decision. The second example I'd like to give you is related to the products that we sell, which is really our core business, right? And again, there are are many, many great examples in the product category, but I'm I'm just going to focus on one today, and and that's seafood. So the Walmart shopper may not seem to you like the typical environmental customer, but the Walmart shopper doesn't want to spray chemical cleaning products on her counter any more than you or I do. But she can't afford to go to her local health food store, if she even has one, in her town, or to her local environmental specialty store, if she even has one, to pay twice as much for an all-natural cleaner. She doesn't want to encourage pesticide use on her food or in her children's clothing any more than the San Francisco mom does, or the Manhattan mom does, or the Washington D.C. mom does. But the Walmart shopper today is literally choosing between food and gasoline. The Walmart shopper today is literally choosing between filling prescriptions for their aging parents and school supplies for their kids. So Walmart's goal is to make more sustainable products accessible and affordable to all people. And with 176 million customers a week, we have a unique capability to do that. And we're finding that this focus has turned around stagnant categories, has brought top sellers where they didn't exist before in certain categories, and has in many cases, not all cases, but many, far exceeded our expectations. So in the category of seafood, the Food and Agriculture Network um, has a goal to make all wild-caught seafood MSC-certified, that's Marine Stewardship Council certified, by 2011. We also work with the Aquaculture Certification Council on farmed seafood. Um, Again, I'm going to leave it to the experts, if I have time, can I show this last video? Uh, I think there's, so. there's 25 minutes or There's I, 20 minutes left in the session. What do you think? What do you think? Yes. 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 Okay, good. I'll show it. All right, um, so again, I'm going to leave it to the experts. Um, again, I ask you in this next video to, to really pay attention to that confluence between what's good for people, what's good for the environment, and what's good for the, for the company. And one of the reasons I like this next video, it has a couple of our environmental partners, uh, both the Marine Stewardship Council and Conservation International, as well as uh, the people that are actually within our seafood buying team um, describing what we're doing here, so... And then we'll wrap up as soon as this is done.
7: When at the source you say it's got to be clean and right, I mean, when at the, at the entrance into the ocean you say it's got to be done right, it means it's got to be done right all the way up to the top. And that is a profound impact on every business that's involved. It's a profound impact on every individual that's working in those businesses. It's a profound impact on every school that is teaching those kids. It's a profound impact on every government that governs those communities.
8: Overfishing has been described as the biggest challenge the world faces after climate change. Over a billion people on this planet depend on seafood for their only or their main source of animal protein. In addition, there are 200 million livelihoods around the world that depend on this last great industry that's harvesting a wild resource for food. The United Nations have estimated that half of all fisheries around the world are now being fished as hard as they can be. A quarter of global fisheries are classified as overexploited exploited and depleted. This is a huge challenge because we're moving from a world of 6 billion people to perhaps 9 billion people by 2050. The demand for seafood is growing and growing at a time that the resource is actually becoming limited and global
7: harvests are actually decreasing. It's obvious when you start looking at things that we eat and things we depend upon for fuel that we've got real shortage issues. Governments are seeing crises. Their fisheries are collapsing. Their protein source is collapsing. Their people are immigrating. Their sources of water are collapsing. We're stressing the system. And you can't hide that. That's just reality. So when that's real, there's going to be a response.
9: Walmart is one of the largest retail purchasers of wild caught and farm raised seafood. Um, we saw a great opportunity here to make a change in the industry and improve the fisheries.
7: The impact of Walmart. Committing itself to a sustainable source of its fish um, is is profound uh, in several different ways. It's profound in that it ensures that populations of fish survive, that they're not mined, but that they're harvested in a way that will survive over the time.
9: The goal of the Seafood Network is to have our wild caught fisheries certified by the M- MSC or Marine Stewardship Council and ACC the Aquaculture Certification Council by 2011. Currently we have uh, 20 items that are MSC certified in our Walmart stores.
8: The Marine Stewardship Council is the world's largest certification and labeling program for environmentally responsible and sustainable fisheries.
9: When the customers see the blue fish eco-label on our our packages of seafood, they can trust that the MSC has used science-based information to ensure this fishery is certified and sustainable.
8: Where they see a seafood product, whether it's fresh, frozen or canned, carrying the MSC logo, that's their third-party assurance that that fishery has been independently and scientifically assessed as being sustainable. It's
9: important to have a third-party certification uh, to drive credibility into the process outside of our business unit. We don't set the standards. The MSC sets the standards. One of our top-selling items in the entire seafood department is is an MSC-certified item. It's, it's frozen salmon, and we've seen great success with this item. We also have other items that are MSC-certified that are doing well in the top top performers in our category.
7: If you're going to have a sustainable fishery, you have to make certain that the ecosystem that the fish survive in sustains. It's not just the numbers of fish; it's how you fish. So it's your fishing practices have to be. Changed, and that's that allows for a fishery that will survive over time.
8: The MSC program not only assesses the sustainability of the fish, it also requires that the entire supply chain, from the boat all the way through the primary processor, secondary processor, ultimately to the restaurant or the retailer, all have to have a, a traceability audit every year to ensure that certified products is segregated from non-certified
9: message to our suppliers is that we want them on board we can't do this without them and this is just one piece of what we're doing as a corporation and it's it's very far-reaching when you think about the ocean and the biodiversity and how many people are impacted so our message has been get on board help us we'll do it together
7: when you say we will only buy a product if it's harvested in the right way. It has an effect that's social. It has an effect that's technological. And that's a very profound, long-lasting impact.
9: If we don't manage our fisheries to a responsible level, we won't have fisheries to buy from.
4: So I just want to conclude by coming full circle to where we started this conversation at the top of the agenda. So at Walmart, are ESG decisions made for ethical reasons? The answer is yes. Are they made for fundamental business reasons? The answer is also yes. And can companies in general do right for the earth and do well for shareholders? Yes. So in short, what we've found, and I'll paraphrase what Lee said last week, is we've always done the save money part of our mission well. And what we've found in the last three years is that sustainability has helped us unlock the true potential of the live better portion, unlock the true potential of save money so people can live better. Um, And with that, I would like to share his final In my view, this
6: effort in sustainability is one of the most important things that we will undertake in this decade and possibly in this
4: century. He does say century, although it gets cut off. Um, So a couple of quick resources for you, uh, because we could only touch on a couple of things. If you're interested in more about the summit that we had last week, it's all by video webcast on our website. You can go to walmartstores.com. Um, And it's pretty much right on that main page. These video clips are two video clips from a whole series that we have in a new DVD, which I didn't bring with me because I came directly from Beijing and I couldn't bear to carry hundreds of videos around the world with me. Um, But you can get them for a penny each from walmart.com slash sustain. Notice these are two different websites. So the first one is, oh, it's a dollar. Sorry, dollar. Uh, So the first one is walmartstores.com. The next one is walmart.com, which is actually our retail site, slash sustain. Um, And then just more in general at walmartstores.com. And you can always contact me. I've got some cards, but there's my contact information.
2: Uh, and, and thank you for your attention. Uh, let's have some questions, if there are any, if you could use the mic and introduce yourself.
9: Hi, my name is Megha Doshi. I'm from the High School of Business at UC Berkeley. My question is about um, the, the link between accounting measures and financial measures. It's clear that things like energy savings from buildings will help Walmart achieve a higher return on operating assets, for example. But to what extent does that translate into higher earnings per share, especially as we become more familiar with how companies are greening their business and saving money? I'm kind of interested in how much the market already prices those savings into the multiples, and I'm wondering if um, this increasing trend kind of limits the financial upside um, that you can achieve from sustainability initiatives.
0: Anyone? Anyone?
3: There is a. Um,
4: sure.
3: <laughs> there, there are two ways of looking at it. On the one hand, we would hope that.
4: Turn
3: off. you turn it on. Very good, thanks. Um, on the one hand, we would hope that the market priced all these issues in and that a lot of analysts are interested in it and reflected. Um, and that would be the ideal. Um, on the other hand, this whole notion of outperforming with sustainability is based on the fact that it's not priced in. So as long as these issues are not accurately reflected by most investors, we believe we can actually have an advantage by looking at them. I think that's an issue that's sometimes overlooked. When all these issues that we talk here, uh, talk about here, are accurately pl- priced into the market, there will be no performance advantage anymore but I think we'll always be able to find new issues that only the pioneers and sustainability investors will be looking at. I can give a quick answer as
4: well. So at Walmart, all of these activities are just seamless in the business, so we don't separate out how this this work has impacted um, return on investment or return on shares or anything like that. Next.
3: Hi, my name is, I have a bad cold, so that's why my voice sounds so sexy. Um, <laughs> uh, um, labor is actually a sustainability issue, and uh, I think this isn't, uh, your presentation didn't really hit on this, but as the, as the Walmart person in the room, um, my question to you is, um, what's Walmart's current position on, on uh, mining labor? Uh, I know it sounds like a very strong term, but uh, historically uh, it's been shown quite vividly that uh, many Walmart employees have to end up in county facilities to uh, obtain medical care, and, and, uh, and that, I believe, becomes an unsustainable um, uh, process for, uh, for obtaining labor. So can you address that, please?
4: Sure. As you can imagine, this is a, a question we get a lot. Uh, now, when you, I'm sorry, when you said mining, do you actually mean the mining industry? Okay. I meant it as, a, as a metaphor. Got it. Um this is this is, this is actually a, an issue that's fairly close to my heart. Um I, I like I said I just joined Walmart 9 months ago and this was this was an issue I looked into very very carefully. I come from a a, a labor union family, a blue collar family. Um many much of my family works um in the factories in Detroit. So this is an issue that was that's very close to my heart. And really the question is, the issue is about fair wages, health benefits and other benefits, and opportunities for growth. And when I started really looking into where Walmart is today, where we've been in the last couple of years, and where we're going, um, I I was pretty surprised both by the facts that I discovered and by my own personal experience with the company. So um, in in terms of the facts, we don't have a single minimum wage job in the company, not one. Our, our average hourly wage is 10.86 an hour. It's much higher than that in urban areas. 92% of our associates have health care. About 50% of those choose to buy it from the company. Um, each, everybody is eligible for health care in our company, whether you're part-time or full-time. Um, there is a waiting period for, for part-time folks, um, and there's a much shorter wait, waiting period for, for um, full-time folks. And there's been some very interesting statistics about as we've improved our healthcare year on year, how many of the associates that are now choosing to purchase healthcare through our programs, we have over 200 different ways that you can, you can customize healthcare to, to make it work for your needs. How many of those people previously didn't have healthcare? Couldn't afford it? And, and we're, we're, we're building programs now so that people can afford it. So it's a, it's a really important issue. And in terms of opportunities for growth, um, little known fact that I find pretty amazing is that 90%, over 90% actually of Walmart associates would recommend Walmart as an employer to their friends and family. 90%. Um, we could not become, we could not operate 7,400 stores globally if we didn't have really happy associates with opportunities for growth. Each year we we graduate literally tens of thousands of people into um celebrating their 20th, 20th anniversary plus with us. Again, that's, you know, tens of thousands of people that have very long tenures and opportunities for growth with the company. So. Can I just
1: add okay. that, that one
4: real yeah. quickly? You
1: know, in some cases, Walmart is the only game in town. I mean, who wouldn't be happy to have a job regardless of what it's paying in that particular case? So I think there's a little, you know, with all due respect, there's a little
7: credibility gap there
4: that... Um, well, ni- 90% of—I mean, our, our associates vote with their with their feet, and 90% of them being willing to recommend the company. You don't recommend your company to others if you're not happy there. If you're not happy with the opportunities you've got, if you're not happy with um, with the wages that you're getting, your growth opportunity, and with the benefits the company provides you.
2: Thank you both. Um, let us we, we have just a few minutes left, so if we can take these last two questions.
0: I'm Tim Smith with Walden Asset Management. I was pleased, Miranda, you talked about the ethical, environmental, and business reasons being seamless. So my my question, sort of a dilemma to Craig and Joe, um, as we move, and I, Joe, I think the kind of groundbreaking work you've done on uh, redefining sustainable investing is so important, and many of us are moving in that direction. But as we move in that direction, it sounds like our reference point is it's all about the money so that ESG investing, especially if you're a big institutional um, pension fund, you are going to have to define it as being protecting shareholder value. So how does PACS, or how do you see it, Craig, uh, when there are issues which aren't all about the money Mm -hmm. and that indeed being a responsible investor might mean that you might want to ask a company to do something that doesn't take care of long-term shareholder value but is the right thing to do? I'm not a disagreeing with the trend. I think that's what we've got to go. But I also think we need to be honest that we might be putting ourselves into a box that has some limits or has some problems. Just like, Joe, you said our uh, past description of being a social investor had a host of problems. Well, this might have a few for us, too.
2: Craig, you got any thoughts, Joe? Thanks a lot, Tim. <laughs> <laughs> I'll, I'll Tim, take I do appreciate you wanna,
4: that.
2: Do you want to go first? Go ahead. Me go ahead. Go ahead. <laughs> um, it's a hard I, question. Go ahead. Yeah. <laughs> I, uh, uh, I I think that that's a great question. It, it's a good point, and and there is um, I, I think that that's why I was hesitant to. Uh, well, that's why I used the the uh, awkward trapeze analogy instead of the bridge because I I don't think uh, the majority, certainly not the majority of Mercer's clients. Are walking across that bridge freely every day um, it, it's a it 's a step that that some institutions are taking very cautiously. Um, it depends a lot um, i 've found uh, in my relatively short time at mercer on on who 's uh, in charge of some of these pension funds um, sometimes it's sometimes it 's one person sometimes it 's a group of people sometimes it 's many groups of people and um, you know the, those people are uh, the people who are pushing. Uh, the e s g or or socially responsible agenda have to be um, have to be cautious um, for fear of uh you know lawsuits retaliation and and perhaps loss of some performance but i, I still think that there is um, uh, there is a trend towards the converging of those agendas it it 's not going to happen. With every issue, um, I, I think it 's difficult, for example, no matter how we in this room may feel um, uh, about what 's happening in Sudan and other areas around the world I, I think it 's difficult for uh, for a company and an investor to to make an investment case for uh, for a company to pull out of Sudan where they have uh, you know minimal or perhaps no real operations on the ground so um, it's a difficult question, but I think there are there are cases and and perhaps the community can get together and and find those areas and and help uh investors investment managers and and consultants out and in, in pointing out where there are those real links and um and and making uh a call that that the social and investor agendas are converging and it's not you know something to be afraid of it's it's something where everyone's going to win and and that doesn't happen often.
1: My, my thoughts on it, Tim, are, you know, the, that's why I said in my view, um, there are values embedded in ESG criteria. Um, and um, it's okay if it's all about the money. Economics is all about money. You know, businesses are there to make money. Now, hopefully over the five-year period, rather than one quarter, um, to go to Alex's, and, and and sustainable investing is, is a long-term investment strategy. It's not a short strategy. It's long. Most of our our, our clients, our investors, are you know retirement funds, uh, people saving for college educations, their own retirement. You know, so I think it's a long strategy, and, and that has to be a critical part of it. That the focus is on long-term financial performance. Um, but I do think that we've found we've found a way in ESG to take. To to translate values, to translate um, positive social, environmental, governance outcomes into economic terms, to help mainstream it and help institutional investors and others find a way to do it, Um, and I think that's that's really really important. Now, it doesn't mean to say that there aren't issues like Sudan, for example, where it's it's just such a, a you know compelling moral issue that. Um, trying to jump through hoops to try to present it in terms of performance and, you know, the company should get out because their long-term reputation might be, you know. It's great to make those arguments, and if it helps you reach the companies and if it helps you make your point, I think we should be making the performance-based arguments that, you know, they're licensed to operate, their corporate reputation is going to be harmed, so, you know, it makes sense for their shareholders for them to get out of Sudan and whatnot. But ultimately, I think we can just make a pure, pure values-based moral argument there as well. I just think that we're not going to, over time gain uh, a lot of institutional, uh, you know, we're not going to convince a lot of institutional fiduciaries or mainstream retail investors over time to adopt, to to significantly invest in this way based upon a moral argument. We're going to have to do it based upon a financial argument, and I think that financial argument is ESG-based, but our morals are in those ESG criteria. That's the way we have found to translate them. And, you know, economies are supposed to be about producing social wealth. Wealth and markets are supposed to be about distributing it eth- uh, equitably and you might say ethically. And I think we're basically positing a challenge to and an alternative model from sort of classic conservative economics, Milton Friedman esque in- economics, and a form of capitalism that would externalize all of these. Um, and we're finding a way to try to re-internalize them for as long as we can make a a, a, and and benefit from um, the performance, uh, outperformance that we might get from doing that and and exploiting these inefficiencies in the market by utilizing ESG effectively, I think it's a really smart strategy, and it's a good way to communicate with investors. And I just don't think SRI classically gave us that ability that we have now. And backed by all kinds of data and studies. It's not just a theory. We have you know, this, this just manifold evidence now um, pointing to the materiality um, and the connection between ESG and performance. We need to utilize that, I think.
2: Okay, we're, we're uh, uh, officially out of time, but I know Alex uh, wanted to add in a word on this question. Yes. Yes.
3: Very quickly, Tim. I, I think, first, there's a significant overlap between these issues and moral issues. Uh, the overlap is not entire, but I think there's a huge potential there's a huge potential that we should address and, and get as many investors behind it as possible. And to give you a concrete example, we recently had what is probably the, the, the biggest deal of, of my life at SAM. We had $3 billion invested against the DGSI. We would have never got that from an institutional investor if we weren't gun down the performance path. Second point, I think the more people are getting on this train for performance reasons, the more open these people will get also to the issues that just matter because they're important. I'm amazed from discussions I've been having with cynical investment bankers who got aboard the DGSI just for performance reasons, and after a couple of months I suddenly hear them talking about how important climate change issues are. So I think it's a good strategy to go in two steps, and it, it helps to move that way.
2: Yep. And, and we, uh, d- just to wrap up, we... Have similar conversations you know i would I would say from my position at Mercer, not just externally talking to prospects and clients but internally talking to consultants it's It can be a dangerous proposition to say um, you know ESG integration is performance based and then you know eventually in discussions with an investment manager or a client or me um, that that there are uh, values based judgments within that it's you know part of it's a, a communication issue and i you know i don't want to seem like we're the consultant chameleon's you know we want to be up front with clients but not not every institution um, just like not every SRI investor is is going to want the same thing so i definitely support the emergence of of sustainability investing and and um, we're uh, we're trying to support it with all our clients and uh, they'll all get there you know in the next year or so i'm sure
8: oh. <laughs>